This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program, and I'm here on Zoom, (laughs) and I would be with my dear friend and colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Useem and Jeff Klein, but Mike is off and Jeff is having connectivity issues, so I am flying solo, but I'm really looking forward to speaking with our guest today, and one of the things I love about the show, if I may say, is that we take a very broad view of leadership. And we think of leadership as an act rather than a position. Now, certainly, you know, if you're a listener to the show that we interview CEOs, we interview people in the C-suite, and we also interview people who are up and coming. Recent grads, for example, or even on occasion students, even a high school student on occasion because leadership can be enacted anywhere and everywhere in the organization. We also take a broad view of various fields. We've had guests on the show from the military, from sports, from healthcare. Well, I'm really delighted to say that today we have uh, someone who can speak to us from the perspective of cybersecurity and take a legal point of view. We've got Rich Plansky, And Rich Plansky is North America Regional Managing Director for the Business Intelligence and Investigations Practice of Kroll, a division of Duff and Phelps based in New York. Rich, welcome to Leadership in Action. Good morning, Anne. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) It's great to have you, Rich. So, Rich, I'm just going to start with uh, a question. If we were were in um, pre-pandemic mode, and let's say we're at a cocktail party or a holiday party of some sort, and you meet the um, spouse of a partner, friend of yours, and that spouse says, you know, Rich, tell me, what do you do? How do you at a cocktail party describe what you do? You know, for years, I always mess that question up very badly. Uh, I consistently wrap myself around the axle with that question until I have a wonderful client who uh, was kind enough to hire me to do a very interesting investigation and asked me to explain to his board of directors what it was that we did. And I was struggling very badly. And he, my client, who happens to be in the advertising industry, stopped me, rescued me and said, so what you're trying to say is you find stuff out. And I, and I had an epiphany. Yes, that is exactly what we do. We find stuff out. And, and to put a slightly finer point on it, what we really do is we help our clients address their most difficult problems with high quality intelligence and evidence. So it's a very, very uh, diverse kind of practice. Uh, and our clients come to us with a whole host of questions. It might be a deal maker at an investment bank or a hedge fund asking what is the risk attendant to doing business with this company and its principles? It might be a general counsel asking, are the people in our Malaysian subsidiary bribing government officials to win government contracts? It might be a a litigator 
asking, does the potential subject of our lawsuit have sufficient assets to satisfy, say, a $100 million judgment? There are lots of different use cases, but what all of our clients have in common is they all need to know something in order to make an important decision. So that's, that's my best effort at, at explaining what it is that we do at a cocktail party. Yeah, that's great. So find stuff out and do investigation that is evidence-based. So I'm thinking now that we're in a situation where we have more data at our fingertips than ever. <laughs> and so can you speak to the change in finding things out over the course of your career? You, you really put your finger on it, Anne. It, there has been a sea change in what it means to do an investigation. When I, uh, I'm dating myself, but when I first started doing investigations back in the early 90s, the problem was there's not enough information. So yeah. investigation boiled down to its essence is recreating an event um, that happened in the past. So back in the day, we used to go out and talk to people, go to government offices, copy paper, uh, and we would try to piece together those nuggets uh, in order to recreate an event or learn more about a person. Fast forward to today, it's the exact opposite problem. The problem is that there's too much information. When, when, when you're talking about you know, corporate investigations, which is what we do, mm -hmm. you're trying to recreate something that happened in the workplace. And, and, and how does behavior occur in the workplace today? It happens uh -huh. on computers, smartphones, trading platforms, chat functions, uh, and it's recorded in the form of ones and zeros. And so the signal to noise ratio is much, much lower. The problem is, how do we find out anything relevant? The problem today is, how do we draw the signal out of the noise? How do we find what's relevant within an ocean of data? Oh, okay. All right. So let me just go a step deeper on that one. Any, any high-level recommendations on how you do go about distinguishing the signal from the noise? Yeah, you know, it's really about, you know, we take a toolbox approach. We, 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 we're all about generating intelligence and evidence. And there are lots of cool and interesting tools in the toolbox that help us do that. We have people with a multitude of skill sets. So they might be forensic accountants. They might okay. be investigative researchers. They might be um, people who I would characterize as expert interviewers, which is one of the most underrated skills in our profession. People who are good at extracting information from people as opposed to collecting information from people. And there are technology tools. And I think that is the combination of those two things is, is what's most relevant. Because if you're not using the right tools, if you're using the same tools that you were using 10 or 15 years ago, then you're going to be introducing pretty dramatic inefficiencies into the process. And so today, there are some really interesting technology tools that help you model what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a, a bribery and corruption case where the main corpus of data is 5 million emails. Now, the way it used to be done is if you're looking for bribery and corruption, you would use the search terms bribery and corruption, and you would search them against 5 million emails, and you'd probably get a million responses. Now, that's grossly inefficient. Right. But, you know, like as it is with other things, you, you know it when you see it. So 
people who engage in fraud, bribery, and corruption typically don't use those words. Right. But if you're an experienced investigator and you see an email that feels wrong, um, the key is to model it and find other things that are like it. And so there are tools in the toolbox like natural language processing, um, like um, uh, uh, programming platforms for structured data like financial records that essentially take the contents of a really skilled investigator's brain, turn it into an algorithm, mm -hmm. and reproduce that expert's decision-making on a much larger data set than any one person could ever, could ever absorb. So one person can't review 5 million emails, right. but you can build a model that will reproduce your decision-making across 5 million and get that 5 million down to 500, and now you're in business. Richard, that's so great. And I know there's uh, some literature out that talks about the ratio of CEO portraits on annual reports in relationship to the company well-being <laughs> and health. Interesting. And they're inversely <laughs> proportional. <laughs> so in other words, the bigger the portrait, <laughs> the more you ought to raise your eyebrow and wonder how well is this company really doing? <laughs> is it about, in most cases, the man or is it about the company? So I'm wondering if you can speak to maybe one of those uh, linguistic patterns that would cause you to think, oh, wait a minute, this is looking a little fishy. You know, uh, it's a great question. So when when you look at a document, let's for the sake of simplicity, let's stick with emails. So I think there's one dimension, which is the words. Mm -hmm. So you read the words and each of the words has meaning. But behind the words, there's more DNA. Mm -hmm. So there are things like pressure, right? There's a feeling you get from reading something that might indicate the person who's sending this email is trying to apply pressure. Hmm. It's not in the words, it's in the feeling. There is metadata associated with the email that may also be interesting, like uh, the time of day when it's sent, uh, the frequency with which emails are sent, um, the, um, the recipients on the CC line. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. that that goes into the character of a particular communication. And, and it's not just what's in the four corners. It's also, is there a departure from the baseline? In other words, are these two people, is there a change in the way that these two people are communicating? Mm. Um, has the mode changed? Has the sentiment changed? Has the subject matter changed? Um, have they started communicating on weekends or late at night, which is different, right? Mm -hmm. So these are things that, you know, by what's that Malcolm Gladwell always says the 10,000 hour rule. Right. So if you spend 10,000 hours doing one thing, you, you start to get good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the folks that we have have spent 10,000 hours and then some, and you develop instincts and, and get good at recognizing patterns. And what the today's technology can help you do is turn those instincts into a model that can then make your arms longer. Mm. So great. How about, let me just remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall. And today our guest is Rich Plansky, and Rich is North America Regional Managing Director for the Business Intelligence and Investigations Practice of Kroll, a division of Duff and Phelps. 
How about, Rich, I know that a lot is very private here, but I'm wondering if you can give um, a, just a sample case in which there was some, that the technology tool was really critical and kind of cracking the nut on that case. Yeah, so um, I'll give you uh, a, an example of a recent case that, uh, that our team has been working on. So, um, uh, you know, fraud changes over time. Uh, there are certain things that are universal, but the modalities of the fraud change. So one of the things that we're seeing a fair amount of now is fraud associated with cryptocurrency. Oh. So um, we, uh, so there was a, you know, a decentralized bank, a promoter of cryptocurrency uh, that had uh, an initial coin offering, an ICO as opposed to an IPO. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, you know, cryptocurrency is it's a digital asset, and there's a unique way that it is um, tracked through the blockchain, which is a distributed mm -hmm. ledger. Um, it's very different from uh, different kind from from uh, you know typical currency. So, um, to make a very long and complicated story short, this was a fraud. It was a complete scam, and uh, the investors' money disappeared into the ether. The SEC got involved and appointed a receiver uh, for this uh, uh, for the promoters, and we were hired by the receiver to find out what happened to these hundreds of millions of dollars that the investors put in, and uh, can we get can we can we get any of that money back for the investors? And so, um, this is way more complicated than one would think. Um, and what it really required was taking multiple data sets that showed money in uh, and then another data set, which had to be matched up with the money in uh, on the receiving end. And then, so we call that structured data. So that's data with rows and columns and typically financial data. Yeah. So it's, you know, to really oversimplify how do you make sure that the right rows and columns are matched up with the right rows and columns in two different data sets? Because the mm -hmm. goal here is to, tra to trace and visualize the flow of funds. Where did the money actually go? And then you flesh that out with unstructured data. So this is typically communications data, emails, chat, yeah. text messages. And so the, the magic is how do you put all of those things together into one complete picture to show this investor put this money in. It went through these three steps, and this is where it is now. And in it, you know, and where it lives now is not as simple as it used to be. It doesn't live in a bank account somewhere in Switzerland. It lives in a in a digital wallet, yeah, somewhere you know in in cyberspace. And so, identifying the digital wallet, getting the the uh, cryptocurrency from that digital wallet to to clean, pristine digital wallets that we can control and then bringing that to the receiver so it can go back to the investor is an enormous challenge that simply can't be done without the combination of great expertise and great technology tools. Yeah, all right, very, very impressive. Now, and this is a little self-serving, but you mentioned that there are four tools and we've talked about the technology tool. You also talked about what you said was an underrated tool and that is the uh, skill of an interviewer in extracting information. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Because as an interviewer, I'm interested, <laughs> needless to say. <laughs> My favorite subject, Dan, thank okay. you for asking. 
So uh, I'm going to paraphrase. So there's this old movie from the 90s called Clerks, and it has a great line in it. Um, this job would be great um, if it wasn't for the people, <laughs> which is sort of a recognition of the fact that things are easy until you introduce the human element. Into yeah. And um, the, you know, the thing with fraud is it gets incredibly more sophisticated as time goes by. But the bottom line is that it still involves humans. Mm -hmm. And the best interviewers are incredible students of human nature. Uh, and they understand that interviewing somebody is a very active process in which you're not just collecting information, but you're actually trying to create a certain condition in which the person on the other side of the table from you feels like it is in his or her best interest to provide you with the information that you want, with truthful, yeah. truthful information that you want. And uh, it's, it's, it's an, I say it's an underrated skill because it's kind of like tennis in that, yeah. you know, anyone can pick up a tennis racket, but not everyone can be Serena Williams. Right. right. So um, everyone thinks they can do it. But the truth is, in my opinion, there are just a handful of people who are really, really good at it, it requires you know, natural skills and talents and, and repetition, doing mm -hmm. thousands of interviews is key. And also, I think a recognition of the fact that it's not just the questions. The questions are critical. But yeah. Yeah. if you view it as three-dimensional chess, there are a lot of variables that you can um, manipulate to stack the deck in your favor. And by that, I mean to, to make it more likely that the person's going to give you the information that you seek. Mm -hmm. So really good interviewers, really good investigators pay attention to things like uh, the sequence of interviews, um, mm. the place where you have the interview, the people who are in the room, yeah. the way that you present the interview. So easy example, if you think that two people in a company are involved in a fraud yeah. and that they're um, in league with each other, yeah, one thing you might consider rather than interviewing them sequentially, yeah. interview them at the same time mm -hmm. and let them see that the other one is being interviewed at the same time mm -hmm. that they're being interviewed. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it, it introduces some gray space into the mix in that the subject of the interview has some uncertainty. They're wondering what is going on in the other room with this person who I know has damaging information about. Oh. Oh, brilliant. And so that, you know, that you've introduced a variable that makes mm -hmm. it more likely that that person will think, you know what, I better be first here. Yeah. And, and so that uncertainty, that gray space is usually filled with bad things. Um, right. and, and, you know, the humans don't like gray space. Right. Tend to fill it with things that they're worried about. Mm -hmm. And really good interviewers know that and, and have a great understanding of, of human nature. Mm -hmm. um, and it's different for every person and it's very bespoke. Uh, and, and we spend an awful lot of time thinking through how to prepare for interviews, yeah. um, thinking, understanding more about the person, uh, understanding what motivates that person. Because oftentimes, despite all of the technology and expertise, yeah. oftentimes the shortest distance between point A and point B in an investigation is one great interview. Oh, that's great. So good. Uh, can you speak to how much um, trust 
between interview and interviewee matters. Because, you know, when you say extract information, that has a certain sense of force. Yes. But I'm wondering if this is so much of a push and maybe more of a pull. <laughs> Depends upon the subject. You know, when I say extract, I certainly don't mean anything physical. I mean, mm -hmm. creating an environment in which a person says something that they normally wouldn't say. Yeah. So um, different people are motivated by different things. Mm -hmm. and, and it's really critical to understand who you're talking about. You know, is this person uh, the type of person who um, feels guilty about what he or she did? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, the, you don't want to go in in a vacuum. You want to find out, is this a person who um, uh, donates her time by working at a, a soup kitchen every weekend? Is right. this a person who regularly goes to religious um, uh, services? Is this a person mm -hmm. um, who on her social media profile you know, would seem to be a person who um, uh, it's important to her that she's viewed as a righteous, ethical yeah. person. Or is this someone who's completely different, who's mm -hmm. completely self-interested mm -hmm. uh, and his background would, would suggest that? Mm -hmm. uh, you approach those people in completely different ways. Is this a person who their greatest fear is being fired? Mm. Um, is this a person whose greatest fear is being referred for criminal prosecution? Mm -hmm. um, is this a person whose greatest fear is letting down his or her family? Mm -hmm. um, you know, th those are very different interviews. Right. Uh, and not only in, in the way you uh, ask the questions, but in who mm -hmm. asks the questions, who's in the room. Uh, different people give off different vibes. Um, you know, there are certain times where I'm the perfect person to do an interview because I give off, you know, a nerdy former lawyer vibe. <laughs> I own that. And sometimes that's exactly the right vibe. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the right vibe is someone who feels like law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the vibe is someone who might have a softer, mm -hmm. uh, more maternal or paternal feel. Mm -hmm. It really just depends. And everyone is different. And if you're not thinking about those things and in, into that also goes, you know, location. Right. And, and notice. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one thing to do a conference room interview where the person knows I'm coming in to do an interview and there's a person sitting across from me with a, right. uh, a yellow legal pad and a pen. It's another thing when someone walks into the Starbucks and sits down across from me and introduces themselves mm -hmm. and says, hey, I, I have some questions for you. Right. Totally right. different. And, yeah. and, and they, they are more or less appropriate and mm -hmm. effective given the situation. Yeah. But I would like to just touch on those other two tools and you research and accounting, looking for um, forensic accounting. On the research side, um, I'm hearing research behind these interviews. In other words, there's a ton of research that has to happen just to prepare for the interview. But are there other kinds of research that you might just highlight for us? Sure. There, there is an enormous amount of information that's publicly available, mm -hmm. especially in the United States. Yeah. So um, everything from a person's corporate affiliations to a person's involvement in litigation at the state or federal level, uh, criminal records, mm -hmm. things like property records, uh, UCC filings, mm -hmm. licensing information, and my personal favorite, and every investigator's personal favorite, social media. Yeah. Social yeah. media is probably the best thing that's happened to the investigations industry since the trench coat. <laughs> Great. What it's done is it, it's taken this huge amount of information yeah. 
that used to be private. Mm -hmm. And it has just slid it over into the public sphere. And there is an enormous amount, as, as we all know, anyone who has teenagers knows how much information uh, goes into social media, right. some of which we don't even know about, some of which we certainly don't want to be public. But it's, it's a massive trove of information. Mm -hmm. It changes every day. It requires specialized tools and techniques to really get your arms around it and mm -hmm. understand it. But the sum total of all of the, the, the buckets of information that I've mm -hmm. just listed for you, Anne, mm -hmm. is that you can become a whole lot smarter about who a person is in a short period of time just by mining the things that are publicly available. Yeah, that's so great. And I may just share a story on the accounting, um, forensic accounting. We have a faculty member at Wharton named Brian Boucher, who does a wonderful, wonderful talk for our incoming students, uh, in fact, our freshmen, in which he gives them little bits of text from annual reports and then gives them three formulas. One is an accounting formula, but the other two are just simply to look for um, language that obscures. <laughs> and the third is something called the fog index. How many polysyllabic Latinate diction words are they in this prose? And then he asked them to use those three formula and just to make a guess at which, 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 <laughs> which company is cooking the books. And just freshmen with these, with these three formulas can do a great job <laughs> snooping out which company might be cooking the book. So of course, you know, he gives them the example of Enron, for example, and they're right on it. So, you know, for young people who might come in and think that numbers are objective <laughs> facts, <laughs> it's wonderful uh, to have them realize that uh, accounting is the language of business and that they need to be responsible in how they use that language. Uh, at the top of the hour, we talked about how intelligence has changed. Uh, when you first began, it was about collecting information and finding the information. And now it's about sorting through all of the information that you have. So, but I'd like to just ask you a little bit now about how we have become more adept at manipulating information. So, you know, I'm thinking about videos that are doctored. So can you speak about the future of intelligence given our uh, capability, technological capabilities? It's another great question, Anne. So I, I let me, if I could, um, refer to another tool in the toolbox, okay. which is uh, our cyber investigators. So, um, this more and more has become a critical component of any complex investigation because boiled down to its essence, what cyber investigators do is recreate computer-based behavior. Mm -hmm. And so that, that could mean anything from, did somebody erase this hard drive? And exactly when? Mm -hmm. It could mean trying to trace where specific email came from. And it could also mean something like verifying the provenance of a certain piece of electronic evidence. So when was it created? Is there evidence that it was altered? Uh, is this something that we can rely on? And um, this is something, you know, back in the day, in the 90s, was not a thing, yeah. as they say. Yeah. Now it's definitely a thing. And, and it's in its, its core, 
to pretty much any major investigation. I'll, I'll give you an example. We worked on an investigation um, uh, not that long ago involving a what purported to be a massive multi-billion dollar judgment against an energy company uh, in a Latin American country. Mm-hmm. It was an environmental case. And we were brought in to conduct an investigation into the provenance of that judgment, among other things. And through some pretty sophisticated forensic techniques, we found out that the judgment, um, while issued by a judge in this country, was in fact written by the plaintiff's lawyer. And the judge was paid a significant amount of money to sign this judgment. Mm -hmm. So part of it was good old fashioned in the field interviewing, Mm -hmm. which will always be a part of investigations as long as humans are responsible for fraud. But a part of it was a very sophisticated forensic accounting exercise, tracing the flow of money, and then putting meat on the bones by putting purpose behind the flow of money, Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually determining through forensic analysis that in fact, the the key document was written by someone else. Mm. It's actually resulted in criminal charges against the lawyer. Wow. So... Now, here we are, we're in a pandemic, and there is more and more working at home, (laughs) even greater reliance on technology. Can you speak to the impact of that on your field, on what you do? It's had a significant impact. Mm -hmm. In our our world, there's a a construct that we often use called the the fraud triangle. you know, essentially, it's that there are, there are three conditions precedent to fraud. Like, why do, why do people who are otherwise good people do bad things? Mm-hmm. So the, the three points of the fraud triangle are opportunity, rationalization, and pressure. Okay. So I would say that COVID-19 has exacerbated really all three mm-hmm. of those points. So yeah. opportunity. You know, a lot of fraud today, and this is really a change from even like 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. is perpetrated by very organized criminal enterprises, Mm -hmm. international criminal enterprises that do things like send out thousands of phishing emails, um, 999 of which will be rejected, but one will not. And when they get that bite, uh, this massive machine springs to life and is very efficient in extracting money from companies and laundering it. So the fact that people are now distributed uh, all throughout the world Mm -hmm. are working from home and there's so much more electronic communication that creates more opportunity because every person who has access remotely to a company systems is a point of opportunity for an outside fraudster. Um, The most interesting part to me though is the pressure. Because I always come, I'm I'm an old psych major. Uh, um, I was going to ask. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm fat. I think the most interesting thing in the world is human behavior. Yeah. And I, I think that the pressure that people are under is dramatically greater as a whole than it was before the COVID lockdown. Because mm-hmm. when you think about the things that prevent people from from engaging in bad behavior mm-hmm. and it's culture. It's their connection right. to an organization. And one of the things that certainly I've realized as a as a manager and leader in my organization mm-hmm. is is how much of that culture is 
tied up in the physical space that people share on a daily basis. And, you know, it's sort of this massive and fascinating and terrifying social experiment that we've all been thrust into mm-hmm. back in the middle of March. There's suddenly that's gone. The physical ties that bind are gone without any notice, without any preparation. Mm-hmm. And when you think about, you know, there, there's a lot, you know, people are complex and they have different lives and many people live alone mm-hmm. um, and rely on the workplace as not just their place of work, but as their, the, the, the center of gravity for their social lives. Mm-hmm. And there is the risk of isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the fear of losing your job. There is economic fear. And those are, th- th- those are pressure points that can lead otherwise good people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, whether engaging in fraud themselves or being more mm-hmm. vulnerable to approaches from these outside organizations. And then on the rationalization piece, mm-hmm. you know, uh, no mm-hmm. one's ever gone through this before. Uh, it's it's easy to say, look, you know, um, uh, I didn't ask for this. This isn't my fault. Um, I don't deserve to be fired. Um, I don't deserve to have 20% of my salary withheld. I don't deserve to be furloughed. They owe this to me. Mm-hmm. I have this coming to me. Therefore, I can rationalize embezzling money from my organization. Mm. Wow. So, Rich, you're, you're leading me to ask one of the questions that I knew I was going to ask. I thought later rather than sooner, but I'm going to go right for it. How has your view of uh, human nature changed, if at all, over the time that you've spent in your career? Um, it hasn't changed at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's either good or bad. <laughs> uh, well, it's both. It's both. So, you know, I uh, remember that there was a book from many years ago, I think it was called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Right. <laughs> so if I ever wrote a book, it would be called Everything I Need to Know I Learned at the Manhattan DA's Office. That's great. So when I, I spent nine years at the beginning of my career at the Manhattan DA's Office, uh, prosecuting mostly sex crimes and homicides. And of the many, many lessons that I learned in that office, the, the most important and lasting one is about human nature because in that environment, you see human nature in all of its forms and in all of its glory. Uh, you see incredible acts of heroism and incredible acts of cruelty. Uh, you see um, people who are greedy and selfless. You see people who are uh, truthful and pathological liars. You see every form of human nature because you're dealing with people, for the most part, in extremists. Yeah. And, uh, and you realize that, you know, while the modalities of crime and misconduct change, like fraud looks different today than it did 50 years ago, but the same motivations, greed, spite, um, ambition, insecurity, desire, loneliness, those same emotions are still present. They have always been present. And I suspect they they will be present long after I'm gone. Mm -hmm. But if you don't understand that about people, then I think you're going to have a hard time doing this job because 100% of fraud is perpetrated by people. Right. (laughs) So so the the human condition (laughs) is is always present. And if you're missing that part, if you're thinking, well, this is just a forensic accounting investigation, right? Then then you're 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 going to miss the point. 
because it, there, there's inherent irrationality in the human condition. It's one of the things I love the most about people. Uh, they're unpredictable, uh, they're beautiful and fun and frustrating, um, but it's an essential part of this job. And I would argue any job involving leadership. Yeah, so good. Well, let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and our guest today is Rich Plansky. So, Rich, I so appreciate your saying that. And if I may say, you remind me a little bit of myself. I've been teaching for a long time at Penn. I went to Penn as a graduate student and never left. And people sometimes ask me, well, you know, don't you think students have changed? You know, aren't they different now than they were, you know, 20 years ago? And I will say, you know, around the edges, there's more use of technology. There are more tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) But fundamentally, my students are students. (laughs) They are just the same as they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So So I appreciate what you're saying about uh, all of humanity represented. Now, I know you've had some really high profile cases in your early career. Is there one that you'd be willing to share with us that that was really maybe in some ways uh, transformational for you? Yes, the the, the one that I think about every day is is was my, my last case as a prosecutor at the Manhattan DA's office. Um, we, uh, a team of us, prosecuted, investigated, and prosecuted a uh, a man named Aaron Key for a series of um, rapes and murders that occurred over a ten-year period in uh, in the Harlem portion of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And the word you used in your question and transformational is the right word for this. Um, I, I I think everybody should seek out these, what I call crucible moments in their career, yeah. where you're terrified essentially and, and tested and, and not sure whether you can do something. And for me, you know, in, in my humble career arc, that was mine, that, that was my crucible moment because you know, this was something that took two years of my life and um, there was a lot at stake. Uh, you know, you there were six different victims uh, and their families. Uh, you know, I, as a parent, I can't imagine anything worse than losing a child or having a child victimized. And, you know, the thing about being a prosecutor is people come to you at their worst moments when they're at their most helpless and when they really need the government. Only the government can help them, can get them justice. And when the rubber meets the road, that's you uh, and, and your colleagues. And so this was high stakes, high pressure. Uh, there were incredibly complex problems of proof. Uh, there were witnesses who were terrified. Yeah. Uh, there was a need to explain complex information to a jury. Um, you know, Try explaining the difference between nuclear DNA and mitochondrial DNA to 12 people um, who have never heard of that before. Uh, and, you know, the, the, it, it was the sort of thing that required complete commitment, complete commitment. Um, and in my mind, it was sort of the essence of, of, of service. It, it, it's a lesson that saved This was public service, um, but 
there, there's a purity, I think, in knowing that you represent someone or something mm-hmm. and that you're duty bound to do what's in their best interest. And, um, and at the same time, strike the balance between, you know, doing, ju- doing justice doesn't mean putting people in prison. Doing justice means doing the right thing. So you have an equal countervailing responsibility to protect people who may be falsely accused. So this was a case that consumed me uh, and and meant something to me. And, um, uh, you know, I think about it every day um, because, you know, I've never been more terrified in my life than when I was sitting at the council's table waiting for the verdict. Um, And I, I haven't been that terrified of anything um, since then, and I haven't been intimidated by anything since then, because I know that no matter what I do, um, you know, someone is not going to be killed because of an error that I made. Oh. And, um, you know, but the, what I've taken away from that is the, the joy in being useful to someone else. Mm-hmm. And that's a thread that's run through my career. And every day when clients make the decision to engage our firm, mm-hmm. I feel honored. I feel that they've, this is really important to them mm-hmm. and they have trusted me and my organization to be useful to them. And it's a privilege and it's an honor. And it's a, that same purity of this is what I need to do. My first responsibility is to help this client. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same feeling that I got when I was sitting at the council table 20 years ago in the Aaron King case. Yeah, so great. So there really is a sense of service that you have. Yeah. I think it's critical, mm-hmm. you know, in my career, that concept of service mm-hmm. uh, and whether it's service to a public entity or to a private client uh, is a tremendous motivator. It's, I think people, in my experience, like the feeling that they're on a mission. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to incorporate that into my own management style. Mm-hmm. People like to feel like they're part of something bigger and that they play a useful role in it. And I found my mission at the Manhattan DA's office. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a it's a portable skill. You, yes. you still feel that you're on a mission mm-hmm. when you're doing work on behalf of a private client. Mm-hmm. And it still feels important. And, and it gives you a lot of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Right. And here on Leadership in Action, we talk a lot about the importance of service and, and mission in relationship to leadership. Let me ask you uh, maybe a little bit more of a finer question. You were a prosecutor. What drew you to that role? <laughs> um, good, good question. These are all really good questions. <laughs> questions. So that I always felt like that that feeling. I sought that feeling of being the person who people turn to at their lowest moment. I, I always thought that would be an amazing thing to do. Um, I you know, was young uh, and ambitious coming out of law school, and I wanted the feeling of doing something useful. And, and I've always told people you know, who are thinking about public service, one of the great luxuries of public service um, is never having to convince yourself that what you're doing is really important. Right. The importance of what you're doing is obvious. And in, in, the, in the case of the Manhattan DA's office, you're, what you're doing is massively important to a small number of people. Uh, it's obvious. You don't have to justify why it's important. Um, and that is a tremendous 
uh, privilege to do something like that and, and certainly makes up for the paltry salary um, <laughs> yeah. when you're 25 years old uh, and, and don't have kids to put through college. Right. right. But um, uh, I, I, that sort of that feeling of mission mm-hmm. is something that I sought out and it's something that I still seek out every single right. day and something that I, I feel like I get mm-hmm. every single day in working with the wonderful team that we have at Kroll, Duff and Phelps and in working with our clients who are kind enough to trust us yeah. with things that are really important to them. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's an honor. Mm-hmm. So, so Rich, did you realize that you wanted to be a prosecutor when you were uh, in law school and you went to Harvard Law, which is, you know, such a uh, famous and renowned place <laughs> for education? You know, uh, well, my initial career plan was to be a professional basketball player, but uh, being 5'9 with a six-inch vertical leap put, it, put an end to that pretty quickly. And then uh, then I, my parents informed me that I should be a doctor and uh, was actually pre-med for about two years in college until um, a very fateful uh, lab experiment involving, I won't get into too many details, involving a large number of bees that I thought were dead, but were actually anesthetized. <laughs> oh, great. That woke up and stung me and my classmates. I realized that pursuing medicine would be physically dangerous to others, and I didn't want to hurt anyone. So sort of by process of elimination, I ended up applying to law school and um, uh, sort of fell into this. I, I was naturally attracted to public service. There, there, there's a wonderful organization at Harvard Law School that I'll give a plug to called the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, oh, which great. provides free legal services to people who can't otherwise afford them. And uh, I fell in love with the feeling of being useful to people who, uh, who really needed help and uh, started to gravitate towards criminal prosecution because I saw it as being you know, an incredibly challenging uh, and, and, and impactful and worthwhile way to spend your time uh, and to use the skills that, that, that you learn in law school. Yeah. And so now I know from just knowing a little bit about your biography that you went to Duke as an undergrad. Did, were you attracted to Duke in part because of its basketball <laughs> history? On advice of counsel, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> but the answer is yes. I, I'm uh, I'm an irrationally enthusiastic Duke basketball fan, and I have to say it's only gotten worse as I've gotten older. Oh, that's great. And I've infected my daughters with this oh. obsession as well, and so. It's not just me going to games, traveling to games. It's my daughters coming with me, painting their faces blue and, and, and traveling to tournament games. And I had the joy of taking my oldest daughter to a game at uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium last year, which was quite wonderful. Oh, that's great. So may I ask, where did you grow up? I, I grew up in New Jersey. In New Jersey. Yeah. So did you have a professional team uh, that you cheered for as a high school student? Well, we did have the New Jersey Nets basketball team, mm-hmm. um, which was similar to like a rec league team at the time. <laughs> so you, you never, no one ever really admits they were a New Jersey Nets fan, but I, I, I have to cop to it. I was a New Jersey Nets fan <laughs> growing up. So good. All right. And now when you got to Duke, what did you study as an undergrad? So after the, the B incident, I ended up being a psychology major. 
And it was it was a, it was one of the best decisions I've made. Uh, I yeah. I you know am fascinated by people, love mm-hmm. people, and I think the most interesting thing to do is be around people and try to understand them, listen to them. Mm-hmm. And psychology gave me a really good platform and, and mm-hmm. some uh, some some uh, rubrics with which to evaluate human behavior. Which every job I've had is about that. It's, mm-hmm. it's at a premium for every job I've had. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, it's it's no less interesting to me today than it was 30 years ago when I started my career. Yeah. So, Rich, we have just a couple minutes left together. And I'm wondering if there's any um, advice that you might give um, leaders or managers in organizations uh, just to help them keep crime, fraud, <laughs> For example, at bay. Yeah. So there's this this saying that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right. Right. And I like that saying because it acknowledges the human element in fraud. Mm-hmm. So you can have incredibly sophisticated systems to help you detect and prevent fraud. And and right. I think banks and, and and corporations have done a great job of this. And the techniques for investigating fraud have gotten increasingly sophisticated. But as my old friends and clerks like to say, this job would be great, but for the people, you still have people uh, and people do irrational things. And the way that you address that is through culture. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, the old cliche tone at the top. Um, The fact that it's cliche doesn't mean it's not true. And I think it is. But I think that really good leaders who have organizations that um, put a premium on good behavior, um, push that down and create really two things for people, I think, that are most important, structure and purpose. Mm. Structure and purpose. The thing that people dislike more than anything else is chaos. Mm. The feeling that things are drifting. Uh, it's, It's toxic. And so you have to create structure so that people understand the table of contents, the roadmap, mm-hmm. pick, pick whatever analogy you want. They like to know where they're going. They like to be part of something bigger and they like to know what their role is, which is the purpose part, mm-hmm. right? So um, and, and in an environment like this, which is virtual, it's very hard to create structure. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to go out of your way to build virtual structures that keep people connected to the organization. Uh, and the purpose part, I think you gain through transparency, that this is what we're trying to do. This is important. And right. you're playing a really important role in this. And, and you're going to be accountable for it. But we're also going to be um, supportive of you in doing this. Yeah. Those are, when well, people feel that way, structure and purpose, that, that, that's your best defense against fraud, bribery, corruption, and other misconduct. Very good, Rich. Well, I'm going to jump in here and just thank thank you so much for joining us. And once again, a special thank you to our guest, Rich Plansky, and a thank you to Patty Hall and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Ann Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Take care. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 